Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm excited to be joined today by Brett Christophers. He is professor in the Department of Human Geography and the Institute for Housing and Urban Research at Uppsala University in Sweden. He's published several books, including in 2019, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain, and in 2020, Rentier Capitalism. Who owns the economy and who pays for it? He's here now to talk about his latest. It's called Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World. And it comes out today from Verso Books. Dr. Christophers, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Brian. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I really loved this book and I feel really grateful to have it. Essentially, you've written like a 300-page explainer on, on this massive yet shadowy corner of the contemporary cap, I mean, capitalism, I mean, it really corners the wrong word because it's really this expanse, you know, of capitalism. I think you note that the institutions you're talking about here now manage over a hundred trillion dollars worth of assets around the globe, which is just a staggering number. Yet so many people know so little about them. And so I imagine, and you really do a nice job helping us kind of get initiated here. So I I know I'll be pulling this book off the shelf, you know, frequently in the, the months and years to come. Um, before we dive into your major arguments and your critiques, I'm hoping mm-hmm. we could just help our listeners, you know, the uninitiated listeners out there get get their bearings by just getting some vocabulary straight, sure. if, you if you don't mind. Yep. So maybe just, I mean, just starting with the, with the term itself, asset managers, people have probably heard of a BlackRock or maybe State Street or Vanguard, but what what is an asset manager? Yeah. Um, so an asset manager is really something very, very simple, um, which is a, a company that um, manages money for others. Um, so if if you're either an individual or uh, an institution that has money available for investment, um, you can either do that investment yourself or you can uh, contract out that job to, to someone else, um, uh, kind of essentially hand over the money and say, look, I'm giving this money to you to invest it on my behalf. I'll pay you a fee for doing that. And you try and make as much money for me um, as you can um, is, is essentially the way it normally works. And asset managers are those companies that handle that uh, investment service on behalf of end investors. Um, and, and, and the bulk of the money they manage is the money of institutions, but they also handle uh, a lot of money for individuals. And the institution, the institutional investors, they uh, act on behalf of or things like pension schemes are probably the biggest one, insurance companies, um, and increasingly things like sovereign wealth funds uh, as well. So that's what asset managers do. They take money from others, invest it, try to make a profit, and then return uh, that money with a profit to those they represent after having deducted their fees. And they do this by setting up these investment funds. So what is what is an investment fund? Yeah, an investment fund is essentially the ve- the primary vehicle. I mean, it can be called lots of different things. Sometimes it's a trust. Sometimes it's a, referred to as a partnership. 
But essentially, it's the, it's the primary vehicle that asset managers use to, to pull together that money that they've um, collected from external investors. They pull it together in the fund, and then it's, it's the fund itself that makes the investments. So it's, it's essentially a collective investment vehicle. And there's a zillion different investment funds out there. They come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. They have different purposes. Um, um, and, and, you know, we can, we can talk about that a little bit. But, but that's the kind of, that's what the fund is. So often an asset manager is often referred to as a fund manager because it's investment funds that they manage. Uh, and people will have heard of things like mutual funds, index funds, private equity funds, exchange traded funds, real estate funds, and so on. They're all variations on a theme. Great. Okay, so we have we have these asset managers who are creating these investment funds, raising money from mostly institutional investors. And if you only get your economics from from podcasts, you probably know this is the giant pool of money in the This American Life episode, right? So people that have a lot of savings to put somewhere that want to see that that's it, those those the yield on those savings. Um, and then they go out and they and they use the investment fund to purchase assets. But when they when they and we'll get to the assets that's that's the crux of the book is the assets they buy. But before that, that when they buy those assets, they're also taking on debt to do so. Often they're often leveraged, right? And so why and 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 how does that work? Yeah, so that's that's a, a, a good point. I mean, one thing I would say here is that it it, it depends very much on the type of. Um, investment that they are doing as to whether borrowing is involved or not. So if, 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 if I, um, you know, as an individual investor, give some money to, you know, Fidelity, Fidelity Investments or Vanguard or someone like that, to invest in, you know, shares in S&P 500 companies, there, there's no borrowing involved there, they're just taking my money and pooling it together with other investors like me, and buying those shares, uh, and 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 hopefully generating a return for me, where borrowing invo- is involved tends to be exclusively within uh, the realm of what is referred to as alternative asset management. And so, what alternative asset management is is everything, basically everything except mainstream asset management. And mainstream asset management is what I just referred to, which is kind of investing in bog standard financial securities like publicly traded stocks and bonds. Okay, so alternative asset management is everything else. And, and the ones that people will be most familiar with are things like private equity funds, hedge funds. Um, and then the ones that I'm kind of most focused on in the book, which is real estate funds and infrastructure funds. So if, 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 if say BlackRock and other asset managers that many people will be familiar with, if, if they raise a fund from institutional investors to invest in real estate or infrastructure um, uh, or private equity, for example, um, and say they identify something that they want to buy with that fund, let's leave aside now what that thing is, because we'll, as you said, we'll come back to that. What they will typically do is say that thing that they're going to buy costs $100 million. What they what they won't do normally, excuse me, is, is take $100 million from the fund and use all of that to buy the thing. What they'll do is say take $40 million, 
to buy it and then they'll go to to say a merchant bank on wall street and say look we're going to buy this asset whatever it is we've got 40 million dollars we would like to borrow from you 60 million dollars the other part of the purchase consideration um and then um, we will pay interest, obviously, on that loan that we're that, that's being taken out to to, uh, to help fund the, the purchase. And then, at a future at a future date, the the maturity date will will repay that debt. And we might repay some of it in three years' time, some of it in five years' time, whatever. And that they'll come to an agreement on that. So yes, and that's what that's what when people hear the term leveraged buyout, that's what that refers to is that it's a buyout of an asset a purchase of an asset that is leveraged because it involves borrowing. Um, and so that's very, very much a part of what asset managers do in the alternative asset management space principally, is that it will be partly equity from the end investors and part, partly debt. And they do that, and we can come back to this, but the main reason they do that is to enhance is, is to enhance returns. So in the same way that, you know, if a homeowner buys a a house for $200,000, if they, if, if, um, if all of that purchase is, to, is their own money, $200,000, and they sell it for $210,000, they've made a 5% return on their investment of 200000 But if they borrow half of it, uh, so if they borrow 100000 and use 100000 of their own capital um, and sell it for 210 thousand then their return is doubled right because they made a ten thousand dollar profit but their investment was only a hundred thousand so that's a ten so it's all about boosting returns that's why they leverage their investments to boot is to, is to boost returns thanks that's really helpful and I, and I appreciate you also mentioning private equity too and these leverage buyouts and people might be familiar with those and it's sort of but it's not really the it's not that that's not the heart of your book and your book is called our lives in in their portfolios and you know, KKR buying Nabisco in, 19, in the 1980s is not our lives. You know, our lives are not Nabisco. Something else people started buying that have to have that implicate our lives in yeah. the story. So, I mean, Nabisco. Yeah. Nabisco I mean, that's, I mean, it's important you should say that. It's you know, when in, in private equity, which is essentially all private equity is, is is um, is where asset managers are owning companies whose shares are not publicly listed. That's what private equity is. So it's 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 owning a company like Nabisco and holding those shares privately rather than on a, on a public market. And of course, when that happens, there are certain lives in their portfolios, most obviously the employees of Nabisco. But my book is about um, owning assets where a much wider set of lives are implicated. And we'll, you know, we'll come to this, but it's about... It's about housing and infrastructure on which society at large is increasingly relying. Let's get there. Yeah. So it's it, it, this is not a book about these big three firms primarily. Um, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard are really in that PE, private equity game and other things. You're, you're delineating between a broader umbrella of asset manager capitalism, which is, is, is expansive on its own right, to what you're calling asset manager society. Um, so what's what's the delineation there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So asset manager capitalism is a term, and I think it's a, I think it's an interesting and important and useful term that is increasingly being used to refer to the phenomenon that is that is represented most obviously by, as you put it, the big you know the big three asset managers: BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. So as many listeners will know. Um, 
those three asset managers and and some others like Fidelity are kind of in broadly in the same tier. Um, they increasingly own a very large proportion of the shares of essentially all listed companies, not just in the US but but around the world. So you know, take take a you know a classic publicly listed corporation like Microsoft. Um, if, if if you go back. Okay, Microsoft didn't exist that back then, but General Electric or what was Standard Oil and is now Exxon. If you go back a hundred years, you know a lot. Most of the shares in those types of big publicly listed companies were owned by individuals. Fast forward in time, there's an increasing amount of ownership by institutions like pension schemes um, um, and insurance companies and so on. But for a long time those pension schemes and so on are owning those shares directly themselves. What asset management capitalism is about is this kind of new phase, I guess you could call it, where well over half of the shares in big publicly listed companies are owned by asset asset managers on behalf of end investors. So it's the kind of dominance of these intermediary shareholders who aren't owning on their own behalf, they're owning on behalf of others. And so typically, an S&P 500 company now, something like 60% of the shares might be owned by asset managers. And as much as 20 to 25% of the shares are owned by just three asset managers, BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard. And when people talk about asset manager capitalism, what they're talking about is this, I guess, form of capitalism where, where capital, which is to say firms, Capitalist firms at large are predominantly owned by asset managers. That's what asset management asset management capital is. And there's all sorts of issues there that that researchers and others have been looking at around questions about corp- what does it mean for corporate governance, for example, when your dominant shareholders tend to be these big asset management firms that aren't necessarily particularly interested in what's going on. They're just interested in owning as many shares as possible on behalf of others. So that's asset management capitalism. And what I argue is that, for the most part, that stuff is pretty distant from people's everyday lives. You know, to, to the per average person on the street, it doesn't much matter whether shares in Microsoft are owned by pension schemes themselves or by asset managers on behalf of pension schemes. It's pretty distant from most people's everyday lives. But it does matter to the average person on the street, I argue, if, ha- if the housing in which that person lives is owned by a massive asset manager or the parking lot in which they park their car every day is owned by an asset manager or the electricity grid that um, transmits their electricity to them is owned by an asset manager or the water network, the municipal water network, which supplies their drinking water and, 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 and manages the treatment of sewage is owned by an asset manager. Because in all those cases, the the asset manager is much closer to the conditions and costs of people's everyday lives. If the asset manager owns the home in which you live or the infrastructure that you rely upon to go about your daily life, that's supplying energy, water, local transportation and so on, then the asset manager has a far greater influence over your everyday life. And, and how much it costs you to live that life and the, the conditions of the infrastructures that you're using 
than when they're just owning financial assets, which is a relatively kind of abstract thing, divorced from most people's everyday lives. So let's think about it from the point of view of the asset manager here. Why branch out from the world of private equity or other kinds of investments into parking lots, into municipal water systems? What's, what makes those, those bits of public infrastructure appealing to institutional investors? Yeah. Okay. So there are, there are a series of things that make it appealing for the asset manager. Um, so there's a, there's a, and, and these are in no particular order. Um, and I would say that the the kind of relative significance of these things has varied over has varied over over time, and I can come come back to that point. But here are some things that make it appealing. One is that there's a kind of a diversification play here. So if you're an asset manager and you are investing principally in publicly listed stocks, and the stock market is performing very very well, um, then you're pretty happy. But if the stock market is going through, you know, is is going through a rough patch, if it's a bear market, then if you are fully invested in publicly listed equities, then you're going to have a rough time of it. And so what asset managers and other professional investors look for is a degree of diversification and particularly what they refer to as non-correlated diversification. So they, they like asset classes where if mainstream assets are performing very poorly, there might be other assets that are actually performing very, very well. And hedge funds is one example of that. They can potentially deliver very strong returns, even when the market is, t- is tanking. Um, but infrastructure and real estate, uh, including housing, um, are often, often regarded as, um, to a certain extent, non-correlated asset classes. So, you know, even if, if, the, if the market is tanking, people still need a place to live mm-hmm. and they're still paying their rent and landlords are still going to be putting pressure on them to put rent for, for rents to go up. And so you can potentially earn a good return as an investor in housing and, and, and infrastructure, for example, even when other asset classes are, p- are performing poorly. So that's one reason um, that they, they, they like these things. Um, that there are all sorts of other reasons as well. Um, I would, I think, the, the one I would particularly want to point to because it's been particularly significant in the last kind of decade and a half, which is to say, since the financial crisis, is that until relatively recently, at least, the post-crisis period has has been a period of both relatively low inflation. And accordingly, very, very low interest rates by by historical standards. Now, a lot of the institutional investors whom asset managers invest on behalf of are investors who who not only look for um, capital gains on their investments over the long term, so being able to being able to ultimately sell assets at a higher price than they bought them, they're also interested in owning assets that deliver a regular income, a regular a regular yield. Of whatever four, five, six, seven percent per annum. Now, in the days when uh, nominal and real interest rates were very high, bonds, so both so fixed income securities, supplied those regular returns very, very reliably. And actually, so did many stocks. Dividend yields were relatively high. But in the post financial crisis period, that really that all changed. Bonds were were returning very, very low returns because interest rates were at rock bottom. 
And dividend yield by historical standards were also very low. So investors, and therefore on behalf of investors, asset managers, were on the lookout for asset classes that that really um, that, that returned a regular, consistent, reliable, significant yield of four, five, six, seven percent or more. And housing and infrastructure really did that for them um, in a way that that during that period, at least, bonds and um, and, and equities largely didn't do. So, uh, is this also, if, can I interrupt you just to ask? Is this yes. also this, this? I also understand this is one of the reasons also that mortgage-backed securities were appealing. Because they yes, have, ab- until, ab- until they weren't, ab- you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, so it was, it was a, there was a question of, of income um, that was that was very very important. And so even if asset managers were already significant investors in housing and infrastructure prior to the financial crisis, that kicked up a gear from around two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten onwards. Uh, and if you read any report from the following decade or so. Um, that looked at, that you know, surveyed or, or interviewed investors and asset managers about why they were putting lots of money into real estate and infrastructure. The number one thing on that list was almost always macroeconomic environment. The macroeconomic environment had changed, and that was why they were pouring money into infrastructure and real estate funds. Great. A couple other um, um, kind of tempting things about the, the sector that that uh, you mentioned in the book. One is um, if you could unpack this for us and, and de-jargonify it, um, the ability to for, for institutional investors like insurance companies and pension schemes, giant pool of money, the ability to match asset and liability maturities. Yeah. What does okay. that mean? Yeah. Yep. What that all that means simply is that if you are say a, pe- a pension fund, you um, have liabilities, which 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 is to say. Uh, uh, payments or outgoings for which you are explicitly liable that have a relatively long duration you have you you have retirement savers whose pensions are payable into the into the into the almost into perpetuity so but certainly into the long term and there's a there's a general theory i guess you would put it in the world of financial investment that it makes sense to try to match um, the maturity profile, so the kind of the temporal profile of your assets and of your li- and of your liabilities. Now, if you have very long term liabilities, most people would argue that it doesn't make sense to have assets that are of explicitly of a very short duration. So, you know, certain money market instruments where you're borrowing and repaying, um, you know, almost on a daily basis or, or on a on a monthly basis or three month basis, you want to invest in assets that have a comparable maturity profile, which is to say they will be generating returns over a similarly long long duration. And again, ha- housing and infrastructure kind of fit that bill. If you if you're if you're owning housing and infrastructure, there's a there's an expectation at least that they will continue to generate returns into the long into the into the long duration um and so that's again that's that's definitely another reason that's often given at least for why these investments in housing and infrastructure take place as what we, what we might come back to is the question of whether that 
rhetoric is actually reflected in reality because I think there's a significant question there. That's really interesting when you get into that. Um, the last piece that, that struck me as, as a reason that, that you might want to get into this game if you're an asset manager is, uh, and kind of ironically, I think for, for people that come into this with some of the ba- bad headlines you get, is that there might be good headlines. It's kind of a public relations play here or in the world of ESG, some kind of investments will get you some points. Yeah, um, that's that, yeah. That, yeah, that's for sure as well. And 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 I, I'm guessing that a lot of your listeners, particularly in the US, will be quite aware of of some of this. So, um, uh, you know, if you take the energy sector, um, which is which is one of the which is actually the biggest subsector of infrastructure investment uh, by asset managers, you know, amongst water transportation, telecommunications, energy is the biggest of all. That's where most investment takes place. It's where most money is put. And as as listeners will know, infrastructure, um, energy infrastructure specifically, is going through a, a significant transition right now from typically brown, dirty infrastructures of various forms into cleaner, greener infrastructures of various forms, particularly in energy generation, so in electricity generation, but not only there, but but as a general phenomenon. Now, if you're an asset manager and and if you can and, and, and if you can say we are contributing to that transition by putting our money or at least our our clients' money into helping drive that transition by buying um, and potentially building uh, clean green infrastructure, then that is potentially a good public relations story, at least until um, Republicans come along and say you're being terrible woke investors here, putting putting wokeness before um, before the prioritization of financial returns. At least before that happened, it was a good public relations story. Now it's both, I guess, a good public relations story in some quarters and a bad public relations story in other quarters. But but that's right. There's there's definitely a, 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 a PR angle here as well. So some of these um, kind of pull factors pulling asset managers into this space um, seem kind of um, longstanding. So diversifying assets, always a good idea. Um, thinking about matching maturities makes sense like a good idea. But this is not this is this is not an old story. And actually, for the most part, for a long time, I think asset managers saw public private sector investment as as not that appealing, right? And so, what maybe just before we jump into what changed, why? What about investing in, in municipality, municipality infrastructure and stuff like that is not is not appealing? Would be kind of turn off these people? Yeah, I think that uh, on the infrastructure side, the um, there have pro- there have been a series of things historically that have made financial investors in general, of, of which obviously asset managers are one uh, one increasingly important subset, quite wary um, hi- historically. And I'd say probably the, the two main ones historically have been, first of all, um, the fact that infrastructure is... is, is um, is a, is a spatially rooted thing, right? Infrastructure is, for the most part, situated in space and can't be moved around. And that means that it is potentially subject to locationally specific devaluation. So um, if, if, a, if a, an economy 
a local economy is thriving at one point in time, then investing in the infrastructure that, that supports that economy might look like a good investment. But as places like Detroit, for example, would be very good examples of this, what are once uh, thriving local economies can can subsequently enter into into periods of downturn, and suddenly owning local infrastructures doesn't look such a clever thing uh, at a later point in time. So, investors and given the long term nature of infrastructure and given the the lack of visibility over the long term, there's been a historical reluctance to invest in those types of assets that are situated in space, and that are potentially subject to devaluation due to forces out of outside of one's control. So that's 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 one factor. And I think this the second factor is that um, is that infrastructure ha- is fundamentally bound up with the state, right? So if you think about things like energy infrastructures, water and waste water infrastructures, social infrastructures, which is another important subsector like schools and hospitals and prisons and so on, um, all of these things are are areas in which in which you, around the whole world, states, both uh, central states and local governments, have historically played very very important roles, both as regulators of what can and can't be done in terms of public inf- in terms of infrastructures that that provide public services essentially of various kinds, and often as owners, right? I mean. You go back to Adam Smith, and one and one of his central arguments was that the state can and must play a central role in the provision and ownership of certain public infrastructures because there's a, it's a case of market failure. It's not in the interest, for, partly for reasons I just talked about, for capital to provide those infrastructures because the the um, because um, the, the, the risk and reward profile is not appropriate for private investors. So the state has often been a significant owner, but at the very least a significant regulator. And I, th- I think what that means is that private sector financial investors have often been wary of infrastructure because they see it as a sector that is freighted with political risk. So um, a, a government um, that is that is uh, um, that is uh, keen on privatization of public infrastructure, as for example, many governments were in the 1990s, might say to the private sector, look, we're not going to own these electricity uh, uh, transmission and distribution networks anymore. We're going to um, um, hand over ownership and control to the private sector. Here you go. That might look like a good investment, but at the back of the mind, of the private investor, there's always this question mark as to, well, might a new government come in at a subsequent juncture, potentially a more left-wing government that's more interested in public ownership, and reprivatize that infrastructure? And might they do that at prices that are not necessarily market prices? So, you know, the country I'm from, the UK, um, when Jeremy Corbyn was head of the Labour Party just a few years ago, one of the things he campaigned upon was renationalization of critical infrastructures in energy, uh, certainly in transportation, um, and in and in, actually in water and in, in water and wastewater as well. And it was, and it was certainly not taken for granted that, that if those renationalizations occurred, the compensation would necessarily be at market prices. That was not necessarily 
taken for granted at all. So that political question of political risk has always also been there uh, for infrastructures as well. So those are, I think, probably some of the main reasons that there has been a degree of historical reluctance. And yet today, here we are with $100 trillion under management. And so how did we get well, here? Yes, but, yeah, but, yeah. but of course, not all of that $100 million is invested in housing and infrastructure by no, any means. No, right, right. That's no, true. That's true. Yeah. That, no, that's true. Yeah. But so we've seen, a, we've seen a massive expansion into these, these social, social infrastructure. And so in, and in your telling, is, or my reading of your telling, it's really, it was governments at different levels that helped to make these uncertain bets more, quote unquote, investable and more attractive. Yeah, so, I think that's, yeah. I How think that's that? absolutely right. Um, I, I think that um, um, what they've done over time is they have, is that governments have increasingly felt it necessary to um, explicitly, explicitly mitigate the risks that, um, that private sector investors see in in relation to these types of investments, particularly in the infrastructure space. I think it's less true in the housing space, although there's there are examples of of of, de, of active de-risking of investments for private sector investors there too. But it's particularly in the infrastructure space where they will say to investors, "Look, we want private capital to invest in uh, and to own these infrastructures." And we are willing to uh, provide various mechanisms to de-risk those investments, and that can that can come in various forms. Uh, pr- probably the most obvious form would be in the form either of, of subsidy. So the government is saying, you know, we will actually, t- to a certain extent, subsidise the investment, or and, it, and ultimately it can often amount to the same thing some form of revenue guarantee where they'll say, look, we appreciate your concern that, you know, if you're buying, if you're going to be buying, um, investing in this metro line, for example, you, we can understand that you might be concerned that in 30 years time, traffic numbers, um, customer numbers might be much lower than they are today. And suddenly it doesn't look like such a good investment. So we, we will provide some form of revenue guarantee to kind of alleviate your con- to, to alleviate your concerns, and I think this has been this has been pretty comprehensive across the infrastructure sector, and and and, uh, and for you, and, and and I'm sure most of your listeners in the US, one of the most obvious and most important recent cases would be the Inflation Reduction Act uh, last year, right? Which is which is in significant part a uh, an instrument of de-risking private sector investment in clean energy by extending and fortifying the battery of tax credits that are made available for 10 years or more that are made available principally to private investors to build and operate um, uh, various clean energy generation generating uh, f- facilities so this is this is happening across the board and 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 i guess before before leaving that point, I would I, w- I would want to make one further point, which is that, I, in my view, um, there are there have been varying degrees of need for that de-risking. I I you know I'm certainly not one of these people that would say governments should never de-risk private sector investment in infrastructure. I I, I I think that 
if you if you take it as given that some of this infrastructure is going to be privately owned now whether you should take that as given is a completely different question for many of these infrastructures my personal view is absolutely they shouldn't be private privately owned i think there are certain infrastructures that public ownership and or communal ownership would be far preferable because the history of private ownership of these infrastructures has been you know, an unmitigated disaster in many ways. But let's take for granted that we're living in a political and economic system where private ownership of these infrastructures is the only game in town. Let's take that as, as a given. And, and, and in many cases, that's where we, we are at. Um, if that's the case, I think there are certain infrastructures where governments do need to provide a, a, set of, a, a degree of de-risking or actually the private sector would say, no, thank you because they don't see the profits there um, and and they're not going to invest because they're profit-seeking actors, right? And and actually, that's a good argument for why they shouldn't even be privately owned in the first place. If, 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 the, if they need that de-risking to occur, then to me, that's a pretty good sign that, well, hang on, if they're not really that interested, then why are we even handing it over to the, to the private sector? But, but a different question, but... If it is a private sector, taken as a given as a private sector activity, there are certain areas where I think a degree of de-risking is necessary. And actually, clean energy, I think, is the is the perfect the perfect example. I think there are very good reasons why the development of renewable power would would um, be catastrophically lower than it is and is likely to be if governments didn't provide a degree of support to investors, just because renewables is actually at heart, not a very profitable business. Um, and it's a very volatile business. And, and so I think de-risking to a certain degree is necessary. But I actually think, and I haven't looked at this question in detail, my sense is there are areas where it's much less necessary. But I think governments have been kind of, for want of a better word, hoodwinked by capital into believing that de-risking is necessary. Whereas I think that in, in some areas, if they didn't provide the sorts of kind of very plump guarantees they do provide, capital would probably invest anyway. Um, but they've kind of sweetened the deal in 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 ways that might not be entirely necessary and that certainly haven't been very progressive in terms of their distributional distributional uh, implications. Sorry, um, and 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 it's that's a long story, right? As, as, as soon as um, governments start saying again, going back to the UK case, as soon as the government or any of the industry regulators of the privatised utilities like water, like energy and so on, start saying, you know, we're going to tighten regulation here, we're going to try and do things to to clamp down on, on windfall profits, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to make sure that water companies leak less um, and so on. The first thing the investment community says is, "Oh, we're going to pull out. We're going to, we're going to. If you do that, you're going to starve the sector of capital." Uh, and there's just a, a humongous kind of scaremongering that goes on, and governments get cold feet. They they roundly believe that to be true, whereas I'm not necessarily sure that it always is true. Um, yeah, and, and one of the most memorable lines in your book that you've previewed here a couple of times here, or memorable for me, is that the transition from fossil fuels to renewables also represents a transition to asset manager society. And beyond the kind of sweetening and de-risking that, that states are doing to, to lure investment in that sector, 
they're they're also I, I, in my reading again. I, it seems like you're saying there's actually a, a more natural fit between in the business model of asset managers with renewables than with fossil fuel industry. Why would why would that be? I'm not. Yeah, maybe that's true. I think the more I think the more important point is that. Um, how shall I put it? I think the way I would put it is that renewable energy came of age in a different political economic era than fossil fuel based energy. So fossil fuels are 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 a creature of a different age when um, when. And, and and actually in in in, in 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 different countries as well. There's a very different geography to it right now as well. So renew, renewables ca- really came of age in the West, at least in an in an era when it had become uh, almost an article of faith, an ideological article of faith that infrastructure should be privately owned, unless in ex- in except in in exceptional circumstances. And, and given that renew, renewable energy came of age in that era, there was a certain inevitability, I think, to the fact that um, renewable energy generating facilities, so wind farms and solar farms, would end up being principally privately owned phenomena. And that's absolutely the case today. I haven't got the data to hand, but far more than 90% of uh, renewable energy assets around the world, certainly by value, are privately owned. Whereas if you look at fossil fuel assets around the world, um, the, the, the degree of ownership by the state or state-owned companies is, is far higher, something around 50%. Um, so the, the ownership profile of fossil fuel assets and renewable assets is, is very, very different. So renewables are principally a private phenomenon. So in that sense, and I think this is a really important important point um and you know it's not it's not a point that is unique unique to me by any means but um it it really that that fact brings home um the idea that um the the renewables transition has been essentially kind of outsourced to the private sector It's it's a it's a it's a sector that has been and is still is being um expected that the private sector will drive it with the government really playing that role of, of kind of, of de-risker of, of removing the risk of that. Um, and, and, and I guess the only, the point that I, that is specific to the book is that amidst that kind of tapestry of private ownership of renewable energy, asset managers are playing an increasingly central role. So companies like Brookfield asset management in particular, are amongst the leading, you know, unbeknownst to most people, are amongst the leading owners of, of renewable energy uh, internationally. And, and much of the new investment that is coming and will increasingly come um, in, into renewable energy over the next decade or so is through investment funds that have been established by asset managers specifically for these for these investment purposes. And 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 for Brookfield and others, the the passive nature of managing a wind farm or a solar farm is appealing, right? It's it's it takes less less hands on. Yeah, absolutely, and and of course, and and this that's an important point, right? Which is that more general point, which is that um, when asset management firms, these are financial institutions, right? When they 
when they buy quote unquote real assets like housing, like shopping centers, uh, like wind farms, they're not operating themselves. You know, people people don't kind of come out of of, of Harvard with an MBA and go and join Blackstone uh, to, to 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 kind of to kind of sit in a toll booth on a toll road owned by Blackstone or KKR or whatever else it might be, or to kind of climb up a wind turbine and, and fix a, a turbine that's not spinning. So that kind of the the, the management of the assets is is always is always outsourced. Or, or contracted out, or potentially in some cases, is handled by a, a company that is owned within the portfolio. But but it's very very that day to day kind of physical management of the assets is far removed from the investment professionals at the asset management itself. But you're but you're right. I mean, a wind farm would be a classic example of something that is very very attractive uh, to financial investors, in part. Uh, and in not, in not insignificant part, because it's very very low maintenance. So once you have a wind farm or a, or a solar farm, um, and this is one of the things that, that is obviously very very potentially very very problematic from a kind of green new deal perspective, is they don't require many workers. They might require a lot of effort to build them, but they require almost no workers to actually run them in 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 the same way that. Um, Actually, fossil fuel assets often often do, uh, you know, manning manning drilling rigs and things like and things like that. Wind farms and solar farms, the operating and maintenance costs are very very low. Almost the entire expenditure is upfront, is in terms of building it and 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 putting it in place. So yeah, you're right. That is one of the things that's very very attractive from a financial investor perspective. And and where I am in, for example, in in Sweden, here in the Nordics, companies like you know, BlackRock, um, uh, uh, other major asset managers are big, big owners of wind farms. So you, you, you go out into the wilderness here in Sweden and you happen upon a big wind farm, the chances are pretty good that BlackRock's the owner. So I think we've, you've really helped us get a really good handle on what's on how they think in asset manager firms about about this infrastructure. Let's let's turn the tables and think about from the perspective of governments why sell. Um, and maybe we've been staying at forty thousand feet, and you have so many great stories in the book that I've, I haven't done justice to. Maybe in the case of, for instance, Bayonne, New Jersey, they sell forty years thinking about maturity, forty years control of their water to KKR. Um, why? I think that this is. I think this is where the um, the term or the concept, the theory of neoliberalism, is actually pretty useful, pretty handy, pretty accurate. Because I think this is this is one of the central stories of neoliberalism, right? Which is that is that um, while a lot of writers on neoliberalism um, sure emphasise uh, things like markets. Uh, 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 as 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 allocation mechanisms, and 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 sort of taking things away from the state in terms of um, being a regulator or controller or allocator. I think the other part of the neoliberalism story is 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 the, is the view that the state should own as little as possible, um, and 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 therefore privatization has been has been. A, if not the, for me at least, the kind of central story of the 
of the neoliberal era. And there's a, a basic, again, it's a kind of article of faith that the, the private sector is a is ne- almost necessarily, by its very nature, a better, more efficient, more reliable, less corrupt um, owner and operator and manager and custodian of assets like infrastructure of various forms than the state ever was. Um, and that's long been a set, an, you know, a central article of faith for, 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 for neoliberal thinkers. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, that's one reason why this has happened, why this has happened. And, 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 and part and parcel of that is the, is the sort of view that, um, that, um, that is, that is bound up with this, but it's a slightly separate point, I think, which is that, um, government should be sort of, uh, austere from a financial perspective which means balancing budgets it means tightening belts and it certainly doesn't mean taking on extra debt to finance the building and the operation of new assets so to the extent that new assets are required it it, it shouldn't be governments that are taking on that responsibility because that kind of contravenes um mainstream principles about about how how government finances should be run. Um, there's there's that there's that kind of inherent fear that the bond markets, particularly in the US, are going to take revenge if municipal or central governments take on new debt to um, to, to fund uh, investment in new infrastructure. And and that's I think persisted despite you know erstwhile acolytes of that thinking like the IMF for example actually kind of saying well actually there are you know we, we now take the view that you know there are instances where it does make sense for government to take on debt if certainly if they're going to be building infrastructures that are rent that are revenue generating in the long term um, and but 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 those sort of principles have stuck and I think for, there's so therefore there, there's that kind of series of principles which I think are neoliberal principles to help explain why governments have done what they've done over the last thirty or forty years, um, and and why so much of that infrastructure is now in a, in asset manager hands. And what role does underinvestment over decades in infrastructure play, and in, in the idea of an infrastructure gap? That yeah, that's a that's a very good point as well. And so one of the arguments I make in the book. Which, which I, I guess I could have could have said earlier is that in, in trying to explain why we've seen this upsurge in asset manager investment in and ownership of of infrastructure in particular since the financial crisis is this idea of an infrastructure gap. So if you go back to before the financial crisis, you've occasionally heard people talk about this this idea of an infrastructure gap, but it's become it's become uh, universal and kind of pervasive since the financial crisis. And the basic idea of an infrastructure gap is that Western societies and actually non-Western societies are in this position where there's this there's this vast um, need for spending on infrastructure, which 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 is both investment in renewal of existing infrastructure, but in particular it's investment in the construction of new infrastructure, particularly although not only related to climate. So both for mitigation and adaptation purposes, a huge need for for spending on infrastructure. But on the other hand, 
if you look at the money that governments have pledged to put into infrastructure, there's a huge gap between those two, between commitments on the one hand and requirements on the other. And so all sorts of consultants like McKinsey and other organisations have written reams of reports about this quote-unquote infrastructure gap. And the argument is that, well, given that this gap exists and given that governments don't seem to be willing or, or even able, for all the reasons I just outlined, to up their commitments, well, where, how is that gap going to get plugged? And the, and the view that the governments, probably not surprisingly, have come to that the only ones that are able to plug that gap are private sector actors. And, and, and who in the private sector has, you know, command of the greatest amount of capital and what's more um, a history of investing in infrastructure? Well, it's asset managers. So there's this, there's this being this emergent consensus that asset managers are the only ones that can save us by plugging this vast trillion dollar plus infrastructure gap that exists and is getting by all accounts, bigger bigger every year. So that's been a very important thing too, which both which governments um, um, argue and which asset managers themselves trade on when they talk about um, why they are needed and why they are setting up new infrastructure funds. And I was really struck by the way that you also talked about the way they've expressed a savings glut as a problem also. We have all this money that has to go somewhere and you have all this infrastructure need that needs filling. And so one problem can solve the other. So it should have been, it should have gone perfectly. And yet it does not, frequently does not go perfectly. And it does not go to plan. We see higher user costs. We see broken promises of, of increased money toward investment. Um, we see more risk, not less in some cases. And um, these are, in your words, a feature, not a bug of these kinds of deals. Um, why is that? Yeah, that's a big, that's a big question. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer it reasonably methodically. So um, w- when I did the research for this book, um, it became very clear that um, from the perspective of those who use um, the various real assets that I'm talking about in the book, so housing and then infrastructure of, of various types, that asset managers being owners and custodians of these assets um, was for the most part not a good thing. That it was, that, that, that it was um, that, as you said, um, costs, uh, the, the costs of use, whether that's uh, rental costs, if you're living in an asset manager-owned property, or water rate costs if you're... Um, um, living in a in an in an apartment or a house whose water is supplied through an, a network of pipes that is owned by an asset manager or an asset manager owned water treatment plant or whatever it might be, um, it, it's typically not a good experience, and it's and it, and it appears to be a, a worse experience than in the than in in the case of many other types of owner. Now, I, what I didn't want to do in the book was was simply kind of rehash existing critiques that exist of private ownership of these types of assets. So housing and infrastructure have obviously been increasingly been privately owned. Um, Rental housing and infrastructure have increasingly been privately owned 
in in recent decades as privatization has occurred and there's a vast number of articles and books that offer very very powerful very very compelling uh critiques of private ownership um which I think argue quite persuasively that, as I said earlier, that, that, that there are many such assets that that would, would be much better off owned in a different way, not by profit-seeking private uh, privately owned actors. And but what I didn't want to do is kind of just apply those those existing sort of vanilla critiques of privatization to asset managers. What I was interested in was: is there something? specific about asset managers that makes them potentially different from other um, owners, other private owners of these types of assets. And I think there are some, and I think there are some things that are different. So one of the things that I point to in the book, um, which I think is, which I think is very, very significant, um, is that at the end of the day, I think most asset managers, um, when they are owners of housing and infrastructure, tend to be quite short-termist in, in outlook. And that that really flies in the face of the idea that, that these are uh, assets that require and deserve long-term, long-term owners that are willing to put in capital investment that will potentially pay off not just over years, but over over decades, and that are really kind of treating these assets as things that require long-term care. It, and asset managers, I think in most cases, are just not acting in that way. And I think there are some some very good reasons for that um, that, we need to, that we need to understand. So one of the things I look at in the book is, th- is the nature of these funds that they are setting up to hold and manage these investments and and in very sim- in very simplistic terms there are two main types of fund through which asset managers invest in infrastructure and real estate there are there are closed end funds and open ended funds the former typically have a fixed lifespan of say 10 to 12 years which means that at the end of those, at the end of that lifespan, the the money that the different investors, like the pension schemes and 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 insurance companies, have committed to that fund, it needs to be returned to them at the end of the at the end of the, the life of that fund, um, ideally with a with a profit, and obviously that means that but be, before the, um, the 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 fund is wound up and closed, uh, the assets that the fund have have acquired have to be successfully sold. So if you if 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 you are if if you set up one of these funds as an asset manager, normally you spend the first couple of years focusing principally on raising funds, raising capital for the fund. So you go on the road and you talk to the trustees of pension schemes, you go to Calpers, the big California public pension plan, and you say, look, we've got this new fund, we're trying to raise five billion dollars for it. Will you give us five hundred million dollars or three hundred million dollars or whatever? Um, and once you start, once you start getting money into the fund, then you can start to put that capital to work. You can go and buy some assets, and and you might spend years one through four or five buying assets, putting the capital to work. Well, by already by that time, you are well aware that you've only got a few years left 
of your fund before you have to before you have to sell those assets. And in fact, research is pretty clear that almost as soon as an asset manager of one of these types of funds has invested in these assets, the first thing it's really thinking about is how can I sell it, and and what can I do to um, maximize the possibility that I can sell this asset soon and at a profit. And not surprisingly, the idea of kind of making investments in water pipe infrastructure to to sort of provide protection against leaks over the next 40 years is not really going to be your priority if all you're thinking about is how can I best ready this asset for sale in two years time you're thinking first of all you're thinking how can i minimize to the bone the amount of money that i'm spending on um, maintaining and operating this asset and no less importantly you're thinking is how can i maximize the amount of money that i'm earning from ownership of that this asset and the reason you're doing those two things right is that is that what you're thinking about is the potential marketability of that asset to other buyers. You're thinking, when I put this asset on the market, so to speak, in two years' time, how can I maximize the price that other investors will buy this asset from me at in, in two years' time? And that comes down to profits, the profitability of that asset, which is revenues minus costs. So all you're thinking about is maximize revenues, minimize costs. And so really the very last thing you're likely to be is kind of a a careful long-term custodian of these assets. Now, closed-end funds are not the only funds type that exist in real estate and infrastructure. There are also other types of vehicles often referred to as evergreen or perpetual or permanent capital vehicles, open-ended funds where they don't have a fixed lifespan and they can exist into perpetuity. Um, and where there is the potential, therefore, um, for asset managers to behave in a different way, to own these assets for the long term um, and to potentially undertake the sort of long term oriented capital expenditure that these types of assets typically need at, at various points in their life. Um So the possibility exists and you will often hear asset managers when they talk about their role as owners of these types of assets, they will almost always talk about these types of funds and not the closed end funds. And they'll talk about how that enables them to be strategic, careful custodians and and so on, which is powerful public relations, of course. Now, the 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 only two things I would say about that are the following. First of all, if you look at the data, the former type of fund dominates so both in real estate and in infrastructure so something like 90 percent of historic commitments of money to infrastructure funds by institutional investors have been to funds of the former type not the not the latter type and closed-end funds are also more common in real estate um, than open-ended funds are so so so, so that's the first point. The second point is that just because um, funds of the latter type, the open-end funds, potentially allow for asset managers to take a more long-term view, to not be preoccupied by the imperative to maximize 
revenue and minimize costs in the short term to ready the asset for profitable sale. doesn't mean they necessarily do. The, the point I would make there is that the, the, the people that run those funds are just as incentivized by bonus possibilities under just as much pressure to maximize returns. And to the extent that um, maximizing returns and bonuses is driven by relatively short-term ownership and, and relatively quick churn of assets, which research shows is the case, they are no less incentivized than managers of closed-end funds. The only difference is that they could behave differently if they chose to do so, but they're under no compulsion to, to do so. The only difference is that closed-end funds kind of, in, kind of intrinsically require short-termism, whereas open-end funds don't require it, but they still allow for it. And I, and I think that this is something that's very distinctive about asset manager ownership, this, this constant asset churn, assets being held for two, three, four, five years or so before being sold on, often to other asset management firms. There are some examples I talk about in the book. For example, of care home, you know, seniors housing, care home chains in the UK that over the course of 10, 15 years have been owned by five different mass asset management firms. Just one kind of churns it uh, to, to, to the other. Um, and yes, the example you talked about, you mentioned of the municipal waterworks in Bayonne in New Jersey, um, when KKR sold, when its fund sold out, they sold to another, another to another asset manager. So this is this is typical uh, with, within the industry. Um, so I think there is there are some specificities of asset of asset managers as owners, which are uh, which are which are different uh, and, and, and related very much to the nature of the vehicles through which they invest. And we can also talk about um, some of the fee mechanism, the fee mechanisms in the industry, which, again, um, incentivize certain types of behavior and mean that the the distribution of risk and reward is is not necessarily what might people might necessarily expect. I have so many more questions, but our time's coming to our time is coming to a close here. So let me uh, let me tell people to buy the book, and I'm going to skip to my, the last chapter, where you do some speculating about the role asset managers will play going forward in addressing global problems. Um, and when it comes to the climate crisis, you predict that responses in the form of of the Green New Deal, which Maybe at first was pie in the sky, and then during the pandemic seemed like, well, actually, uh, we're getting a lot of op-eds about with Keynes and them, a lot of op-eds with MMT and them, in a sense that maybe we have, we're ready for kind of um, un historically unusual levels of, of spending again. Um, that moment seems to be only have been a moment, uh, and we get an Inflation Reduction Act instead. And so your, your, your sense at this moment is that we're less likely to see something that looks like that and more likely to see more things that look like, for instance, BlackRock's climate finance partnership. Beyond one being public, one being private, what are the important differences between these two forms of, of climate action? Well, um, I, th I mean, the public versus private distinction is is obviously a very very is, is obviously very very important one. Um, but also, again, I think that there's I think that this this question of time horizons is 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 a very very important one. By by its very nature, you would argue that. Um, the, the climate crisis and 
and to the, the extent to which the climate crisis is an infrastructure crisis requiring a set of infrastructure solutions relating to adaptation and mitigation, you would argue, I think, most people would argue that it's long-term by its very nature. But but if, if as I think we're seeing is the case, much of the investment that um, asset managers are encouraging and undertaking in and around climate infrastructure continues to be through short-term vehicles and have a and have a kind of a short-term mentality attached to it i think i think that's definitely um that's definitely problematic um and and i think the other thing of course is is you know going back to the to the public versus private distinction the, the 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 public sector is able to do is potentially able to if it if it were willing to um um, marshal the resources that it potentially has at its disposal in terms of kind of borrowing capacity um, and, and, and other related and, and other related aspects. The public sector could potentially do things on a scale and at a speed that is far more befitting of the climate crisis than the, the private sector can and will. The, the, the private sector um, will only, uh, as far as I can see, um, increase the pace of investment in in things like renewable energy capacity um, um, to the extent that the, 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 the state subsidises it to do so. Um, and I think as all the, all the reports that are coming from... Um, from organisations like the IPCC and even the IEA, the International Energy Agency, suggest is that we're still orders of magnitude away from um, the level of investment in renewables that, that are required. Um, it doesn't require kind of 15, 20% increases a year, which is what we've been seeing and what kind of gets lauded. They need to be doubled or trebled level, levels of investment. And now, not, and, and the private sector is not going to, is not going to do that. That, that kind of level of transformational change, I think, can only be affected by the state uh, taking a much more hands-on role, not just as what it is now, which is a de-risker, but as a investor um, in assets that are built, maintained, and controlled by the by the public sector. Um, and so, I think that. That's kind of the other, the other, the other point I would I would want to make, um, and the and I guess the irony there, if you look at these things on an international scale, which increase, which is increasingly what I've been doing, um, you you would argue that you know the probably the only country where such a step change could really happen given existing political economic arrangements is probably China, right? Because you have a you have an you, you have an autocratic regime. You have you have a, a political economic system where most of the big relevant corporations are owned are owned wholly or predominantly by the state, and so the state still has, for better or worse, that capacity to do things on a dramatic scale and a willingness, I think, to do things on a dramatic scale that the climate crisis arguably requires in a way that the the West doesn't because it has outsource so much of this to the to the private sector where where the where the the level of financial rewards 
that would be necessary to elicit that kind of transformational investment um, just don't exist. Before I let you go, I, I hope you're kept very busy in the months ahead talking about asset managers, but when things calm down a bit, are there any future projects you're willing to preview for us? Yeah, I am just actually just picking up on the last, this last point. I'm working on actually just finishing up a new book for Verso on um, renewables, on investment in renewables, on the climate crisis, and on, I guess, gl the global energy transition. Um, and, and, and precisely on that question of why capital will not solve the climate crisis in terms of specifically in terms of the, the, the energy transition and the pace and scale on which it's on which it's necessary. So hopefully that will be coming out early next year. Oh, I'm sure our listeners will be looking out for that one. Thanks so much. So but for now, this book, again, is Our Lives in Their Portfolios. Why Asset Managers Own the World comes out today from Verso Books. Its author is, and my guest has been, Brett Christophers. Brett, thank you so much for this, your time today and for this book. Thanks very much for having me.